welcome to That's Podcasting, a movie musical podcast. I'm Cody Pasby. And I'm Paul Ponte. And this week we continue our Rock and Roll Month. We have been discussing movies that either star rock stars or, or popular music stars of the era or feature music primarily from one band or written by one band. We talked about uh, the Village People's Can't Stop the Music featuring much of that disco-infused uh, music from that era and, of course, the Village People's music. Or musicals with George Burns. That's our, that's, that is that's our the next, other part of this category. <laughs> that is also part of this category, and we have yes. finally, finally, folks, we have reached the mountaintop. We are talking about a movie musical starring George Burns. The uh, Are we ever, ever going to see... And it's not just George Burns. I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent real quick here. It wasn't just George Burns. But back in the day, it felt like people could become big stars really late in life. Like, George mm. Burns was always around, but his stardom, his pinnacle of stardom, is when he's past the age of 75. And I feel like it happened oh, with yeah, him. Definitely. Roddy Dangerfield, he, although he wasn't as old, but certainly Rodney Dangerfield, well past his 50s at that point by the time he becomes a superstar. Is that ever going to happen again? I just feel like it's never going to happen again. I mean, yeah, it's, to the level he was, I don't think so. I mean, like I was a kid who knew who George Burns was, and I think yeah. that's a very, very specific sort of fame to where, like, Adults are like, oh, I've kind of knew, knew about him my whole life. But kids are like, I definitely know who this dude is. He like, died when he was 100 years old, by the way, 1996. Yeah. And again, so he had, even after that, where he suddenly becomes a huge star, he's got nearly 30 years of that stardom to, to run with. Wild. I, I, I doubt we ever see the likes of a George Burns ever again, and uh, we're all worse off for it, Paul. Yeah, I, I rented uh, Oh God when I was like 10, and I watched it. What, very... what, was with, what was with the 70s fascination of like casting George Burns as this type of guy, by the way, as they do in this movie, the movie we're talking about today, oh, of no, course. He, he's God again in this movie, as far as I'm right. concerned. The he's movie we're talking God. about is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, named after the seminal Beatles album uh, from the late 60s. You mean George Burns' Lonely Hearts Club Band. Thank you. But he's always that sort of like... This godlike figure—is it just because it's like you know what would be funny if a little old man was God? Wouldn't that be adorable? Who do we yeah. got, George well, Burns? They know they wanted him because you know he's a comedian, so it's kind of like it's like actually it's it's such a great comparison, uh, you know, like George Carlin, right? Uh, like like that kind of thing where you're like, I want like an older gruff comedian. To be like the voice of of reason, like George Carlin in, uh, excuse me, Bill and Ted. Right, right. That's true. I, I guess it's the the classic movie trope that I did not realize until this very moment is a classic movie trope. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll get into George Burns. There's so much to dig into about this movie. A movie that has grown in infamy over the years 
a movie that stars, I mean, two of probably the most popular acts in music of that era that, I mean, maybe I would say two years later, each of their stars had faded real fast. Hmm. But they caught them. They got this moment. They captured it in a bottle of just these guys could not be touched. Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees. You combine that with the incredibly popular Beatles music. I mean, timeless music. I think it's a theme always when Hollywood tries to adapt the Beatles music or a Beatles story. It's And we saw it with Yesterday. And you see it yeah. with Across the Universe now, what, we're going on just about almost 15 years ago now, that it's always like, this music is timeless. This music will always be popular with whoever uh, decides to perform it. And they definitely put that to the test in this movie, and I'm not quite sure that audiences felt the same way. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, them acting in a movie about timeless music, because, you know, both those acts you mentioned had big, huge returns in the 80s, in the late 80s. Like, that's it's pretty crazy if you think about it. Like, both of them were, like, huge in the 70s, kind of, like, shifted off, and then had major uh, lifts again in the late 80s. Actually, wait, so did Aerosmith. Aerosmith uh, did. Earth, Wind, and wow. Fire, maybe not so much. This was Earth, Wind, and Fire's peak. No. Earth, Wind, and Fire remained popular for a while. Alice actually. Cooper got popular again in the 80s. Yes, he did. You know what else, Paul, to connect it all together? Uh, Aerosmith and Alice Cooper both appear in the Wayne's World film series. Damn right they do. Yeah, very strange how all these guys are sort of connected. Also, a bunch of people in this movie, particularly one guy, uh, Steve Martin, and then that whole cavalcade of stars at the end of the movie yeah at some point i was like wait a minute was donna summer in this movie like what's going on no yeah it's like no it's just like donna summer's there carol channing uh tina turner it's just like they all just showed up yeah uh, it, basically and it's funny there is a part of me it's like this has a very muppets movie feel at times uh and that's because almost i would say at least 10 people in this movie also appeared in the muppets movie it had a very muppets feel it does. Like the sensibilities, you could tell the Muppet movies were start were made in the you know in the seventies as well as this, because like there's a lot of seventies sensibilities. Uh especially there's one scene, and we're gonna get into the plot later, but uh, there's one scene in particular where uh what's the uh the the the, the female lead? Oh, that uh, would be the, Sandy Farina who Sandy Farina one of her very this is her first movie and really her only really big movie she ever yeah. did. Uh there's the moment when she sees uh Lucy and they do this 70s thing where that they love doing where the person just opens their eyes super wide and the camera just zooms in real tight just on their eyes wide and they don't move their head it's just eyes wide no blinking just zoom in and then it cuts to the next person backed in and i'm like god damn this is so funny it's almost <laughs> like the cast and crew who would make these movies had experience uh you know at get-togethers or parties where suddenly someone would just stare at a wall eyes wide open for no discernible reason and no yep. one could quite figure out why you know yeah. was it all the drugs being passed around with no care maybe uh that's probably why but and as opposed to uh I keep forgetting. Is it Can't Stop the Music? That would be the Village People movie? Yeah. Yes. Or is it Don't Stop the Music? Can't, can't Stop, stop the, music. the Music. Can't Stop the Music. Can't Stop, Won't Stop the Music. Uh, unlike that movie, which really tries to like hide away from like the more seedy elements, they even, they even there's like, what, one scene of them smoking pot? Yes. Th this one's just like, 
pots everywhere, baby. Where's the drugs? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the best is when they arrive in L.A. And as they're in the car, it, it, you know, you it's that typical like, oh, look there. Look there. Look at all the sights. But the first thing they're like, look at that. And it's a, just a porn shop. It's like a strip club and a porn shop. And they're like, they're from- Wow. Well, they're from Heartland, you know? Yeah, they don't have this back in Heartland, you know? All the you know, seedy underbelly of Heartland, USA, you know? Their their Midwestern town, you know, has, has little values, so they don't have porn shops. Right, they don't have porn shops. Uh, instead, they just have really deep-rooted racism that rears its ugly head every once in a while. That I'm sorry, I'm making aspersions about Heartland that it doesn't deserve. I'm sorry. Uh, how many people of color live in Heartland? Hmm. Didn't look like a lot. Didn't look like a lot. I can tell you that. Yeah. So, this movie is produced, by the way, is by- Is it a movie? <laughs> <laughs> this collection- That's a stretch. Of songs yeah. that was filmed and then presented to audiences as if it were a major motion picture. It, it feels like the way Moonwalker was a movie. Like Yes. I guess. Okay. It's sure. a real, real long music video. It's almost, yeah, it's a collection of music videos, very thinly plotted and thinly connected together with a very, very loose plot. Yeah, if you don't, if you've never seen this movie, even as a Beatles fan, uh, this was a movie I don't think I watched until maybe four or five years ago. And this comes from someone who grew up listening to the Beatles all the time. I even grew up listening probably to this album. Uh, it was a part of my parents' vinyl collection. I can I can distinctly remember seeing the, the cover of the album. Uh, but I don't know if I was just being guarded from this movie. Just like, don't ever, don't ever <laughs> watch this movie. I'm not really sure, but I just never got around to watching it until later in life. And um, what am I trying to say? Uh, as I say this mess of a sentence, it's kind of like the movie. It's just a complete mess. And uh, it doesn't know where it's going. It's it's a lot a lot of drugs were, were taken in the process of making this movie, to put it lightly. So as I was mentioning, uh, the, the producer of this movie is theater and film producer Robert Stigwood. He also produced the subject of our t- uh, podcast last week, Tommy. Uh, he's a guy who produced a lot of Broadway hits, a lot of uh, big movie musicals. He would be the producer of Grease at the same exact time as this. At this time, Robert Stigwood, in this era, he just produced Saturday Night Fever with the Bee Gees. Okay. Grease was wrapping up production as this movie was starting production. So it was just like boom, boom. It was supposed to be like boom, boom, boom. This guy cannot be stopped. This guy is I a know, hit maker. I know they say that, uh, you know, projects are like children. You can't pick which ones are your favorite. But I, I think it's very obvious to me which which ones had the had more attention paid to them. Let me just say. <laughs> yes. Although... Uh, again, a lot of drugs, and I think a lot of guys not only high off of a ton of cocaine, but high off their own supply, <clears throat> where I think he thought he just could not be stopped and thought, well, it's the Beatles, it's the Bee Gees, it's Frampton, it's me. This is going to be a hit. So, 
Yeah. And the reason this movie gets made is that in 1974, Stigwood purchased the rights to 29 Beatles songs for use in a Broadway musical. The show was called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on the road, and it played off-Broadway for 66 performances. In fact, John Lennon actually attended multiple rehearsals and opening night uh, with his then-lover May paying on what uh, many call, of course, the lost weekend uh, for John Lennon. Stigwood was determined to do more with the music rights than just the stage show, so he partnered up with New York Times music critic Henry Edwards to bring the show to the screen. With Het Edwards handling the script, it should be mentioned, Henry Edwards had exactly zero screenwriting experience prior to this movie. Red flag number one. Although the Beatles themselves were not involved in production, their longtime producer, George Martin, served as the film's music director. Wait. Right before he started Game of Thrones? <laughs> not that, George R. Not that um, one. Although, I mean, they were in New York at the same time. Who knows? Maybe they're the same guy. We just don't know. it. What That would be a plot twist worthy of a song in Ice and Fire. Of Ice and Fire, excuse me. Anyway. Their longtime producer, George Martin, served as the film's music director. He wrote new arrangements that are heard in the movie. All of the songs off of Sgt. Pepper, minus Within You, Without You, and Lovely Rita are included in the film, along with most of Abbey Road, including, and there's a few other ones sprinkled in throughout the film as well. Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Explain. If you have an album called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and you say, we're going to make a movie of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, I don't expect to hear another album in there, Cody. What is this? That's a fair point. Also, them shoehorning Strawberry Fields Forever by naming a character Strawberry Fields, my least favorite thing to do in these types of musicals, when the name Rita was right there. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I didn't even think of that. What are you doing? That's too funny. That's too funny. You make her... I don't get it. What are you doing? Her name's Rita. She's the she's the the the, the, the ticket. What do you call it? The she's parking. lovely, right? She's lovely. What is it? She's the the parking. Uh, what do you call those cops? The, the she's people a give you a parking. Yeah, thank you, meter maid. <laughs> literally, it's it, it's literally in the song. What a brain fart. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. Why don't you make her a meter maid named Rita that he falls in love with? I don't. It's, they weren't thinking clearly in this movie. There's so there's so much of that. Just this brain bending bizarre like trying to try, trying to figure things out trying to come to and trying to explain things that it's just like you're trying way too hard yeah they 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 like try to shoehorn in as much reference and like explain references as much as they can and like you can't do that when you're transferring things from one medium to another no no it's different when it's tommy which is written as a uh, even though the plot was not totally fleshed out, like there's a story there yeah. that, within the album. This is, and, and Sgt. Pepper is a concept album, but the concept is almost that it's a variety show. Like that is yeah. the concept, is that they're at this big sort of circus carnival variety show, and here are all the different acts. Yeah, so I thought when the movie starts, I thought that's what we were going to get. I thought it was going to be like, oh, it's the return of this Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Now it's a younger generation doing it. And I thought I thought it was going to be like an 80s movie where, like, you know, something happens and they need to raise money for the town or something. 
and then they put on a show, and that's what I thought it was going to be. And I was like, no, that would make too much sense for this movie. That would be too straightforward. Yep. Thinking. That only that's only a maybe eighth of the plot of this movie. <laughs> yeah, there there's there's a scene, and, I, and I'm sorry, I'm jumping around here because um, you're going to talk about the whole plot of the movie soon. But there, the scene when they come back to Heart to Heartland, right? That's the name of the town. Yeah, yeah, yeah Heartland, Heartland, USA. Yeah, the team when they come the, the the scene where they come back to Heartland USA and they're all in their colorful you know garb, and everyone's celebrating. I was I was I was on uh, the treadmill watching this. Uh, I have a TV in my garage watching. I'm on the treadmill and I'm like, huh, that's weird. This movie's a lot shorter than I thought it was though it was because I assumed this was the end. I was like, oh, they got the instruments. They're back home. Story's wrapped up, baby. And then it's like. Wait, and then I like I was like, huh? So I took you know the remote, and I was like, thirty nine minutes. This what? movie is we're way not even too at the long. third act. I was like, wait, it's way too long. It's so long. And there's one point, there's one thing that happens near the end where I'm like, if you had just handled this a teensy bit differently, we'd be out of here already. But instead, we're here for twenty five more. Just oh god, and, and the length wouldn't be a problem minutes. if they if they if it was ordered correctly. But I feel like the scene I'm talking about feels like an ending to a movie. Yes, it does. And and then there's just another entire storyline where like we already have like why do we need two villains in the story? There's more like five villains in this movie. Yeah, they also but, try I mean, to make like the stepbrother sort of a villain, but it's like yeah, who cares? Yeah, it was very just very strange. Anyway, uh, continue, Cody. Yeah. I apologize. For, I, I don't. I don't mean to jump around in your format. I just. The, no, I, this, I felt this, like I had to get it out. This movie, but it would be in tune with this movie if I did that. So. There's, yeah, exactly. There's just too much to get into. There's so much madness going on. So, judging by the casting choices uh, and the year this movie came out, the obvious conclusion to make. Uh, is that the studio is banking off of the incredible popularity of music superstars Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees, but that would actually only be half right. Uh, when casted as the film's co-lead in 1977, Peter Frampton was on top of the world. Frampton's come, Frampton Comes Alive was the top-selling album in 1976. It was voted as Rolling Stone's Album of the Year by readers. As for the Bee Gees, they were actually cast by Stigwood, who was also their manager, to give their careers the boost they desperately needed. After a string of pop hits in the late 60s and early 70s, the brothers Gibb had hit a lull. Although they were shifting over to the disco genre and it was starting to show, uh, it was starting to pay off a little bit. But it hadn't really hit the, they, they hadn't hit the gas yet. That would change very early in production as their other project, the aforementioned Saturday Night Fever, also produced by Stigwood, was released in theaters and they became the biggest musical act in the world. Seemingly overnight. Once Stayin' Alive hit, yeah. Yeah, Stayin' Alive, I mean, everything. Uh, it, it became the best-selling album in 1977 uh, in the United States and around the world. To this day, it remains the second best-selling soundtrack of all time, just behind Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard. Uh, the Bee Gees mm. got so big, in fact, that they went from sharing one trailer at the start of production to each of them having their own trailer about midway through. Pretty good. Uh, the Love director it. of this film was Michael Schultz, more known for his ensemble comedies like the cult hit Car Wash, uh, starring uh, a guy we just mentioned earlier, George Carlin. Uh, he was also known for his collaborations with comedy legend Richard Pryor. Uh, he was brought on to direct the film 
that was because Schultz nearly worked with Stigwood before. Earlier that decade, Stigwood offered him the chance to direct a movie musical adaptation of the Broadway hit Grease. Schultz thought it would be a flop, and he turned it down. Not wanting to repeat his mistake, he accepted the role as director, despite, once again, thinking that the film would be a flop. Yeah, uh, it also notes that uh, this is this movie is actually the largest bu- budget uh ever entrusted to an african-american film director to that date yeah so that was the first time that like they took a big swing at that and the movie wasn't a flop it was a, it was a minor success it so it's not like it's it's not like a huge deal but he also directed uh denzel washington's film debut carbon copy yes he's actually gone on to he, he's still to this day is directing television as you mentioned he directs denzel washington's uh, screen film debut He's also had a very successful career as a television director. He's worked on hit shows like Black Lightning, Gilmore Girls, New Girl, Blackish, and Arrow. So, uh, and he continues to work to this day. I will say this, by the way, Black Lightning. It is one of the more underrated superhero TV shows. Uh, it is really well done. Uh, the tone is great. The actors are great. Uh, everyone should watch it. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, I kind of fell off the uh, the CW's DC superhero shows, but well, I always enjoy them. Is- They're always fun. The good thing is, it is only recently that Black Lightning actually appeared in a crossover. Other than that, he's it's basically its own world. They don't right. they don't mess with it, uh, which is good because sometimes a little too much crossing over. Yeah. But yeah, the show's good, and uh, this dude's a good director. It's just you know, it, it's like he was given a puzzle with a lot of pieces missing. Yeah, and from like three different puzzles. And again, if he, w- <laughs> if he went with his gut, he wouldn't have done this. But he he felt so spurned by uh, turning down. Greece that he sort of reluctantly took the job so like our subject last week the film Tommy this film was set to have a superstar cast featuring some of the biggest names in Hollywood at the time some of the stars that turned down roles included Olivia Newton-John who was supposed to play Strawberry Fields Donna Summer mm. who was so you rich- would say she's the one that they wanted and she was the one that they want ooh 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 you mentioned Donna Summer she actually was supposed to play Lucy initially I thought so i thought for sure i was like i feel like they made that role for her yeah yeah there's a lot of that it's you can tell they went with a lot of the second or third choices with a lot of people Uh, elton john was supposed to be in this movie barry manilow the original pick for mr kite uh the role that george byrne plays is bob hope uh, Doris Day was supposed to be in this film as uh, Strawberry Fields' mother, as well as Rock Hudson as Strawberry Fields' father. Oh. But probably the uh, most famous nearly casted group or actors, or well, in this case, group, band, was the band Kiss. They were originally set to perform the cover of Come Together. They were going to be the FVB, the future villain band. <laughs> But they didn't take the role. They thought it would hurt their image. <laughs> no, they didn't hurt their image until 2013 when they founded the Los Angeles Kiss Arena football team. Uh, also, you can buy your officially licensed Kiss coffin right now. The fact that Kiss, the most, the biggest sellout band in history at that time, was actually worried about ruining their image is is incredible to me. What was it? Uh, the, was it on Drew Carey where they had the Kiss coffin? Uh, and then uh, the the coffin like has a button, 
And when you push the button, it plays God gave rock and roll to you. Gave rock and roll to you. Imagine being lowered into the ground as someone very solemnly pushes that button as you go to the ground. Gave rock and roll to you. Gave rock and roll for everyone. Oh, man. Uh, by the way, Kiss opted to make their own movie that year instead, 1978's Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Uh, honestly, probably the right move on their part. Hmm. Film is, of course, not lacking for big names, along with Frampton and the Bee Gees, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Alice Cooper, yep. Aerosmith, and Billy Preston. Preston, the only performer with deep ties to the Beatles who performs in the movie, all perform standout covers of the Beatles' music. Thanks to the production of George Martin, the soundtrack, I would say, is probably the one thing this movie actually gets right. Uh, three of the songs charted on the Billboard Hot 100, Earth, Wind, and Fire's Got to Get You Into My Life, Robin Gibbs' version of Oh Darling, and of course Aerosmith's Come Together. Which I mentioned before on the podcast, uh, when I was younger, I thought that was their song. It's a but great version of the song. The It's the only version I had ever heard at the time. And I grew up loving that version. And so when I heard the Beatles one, I was like, I was, it was one of those like, I know this is the original, but this isn't my original. Right. Like, it just sounds different. <laughs> it's new to me. Yeah. Uh, we both mentioned that this is an album. I think you might have mentioned before we started. This is an album that uh, we both had in our households as children. What do you actually think of the album? Like, separate it from the movie. Oh, the songs are great. Same here. I think the songs are great. I love, I love hearing gr talented, great artists doing a talented, great band's music. I think that's like a home run. I love stuff like that. Yeah. I, I think the, the songs that are the least memorable are the ones where it's just them doing covers of the song without adding any of, the own, of their own flair. Versus yeah. like, I love Oh Darlin'. I love the Robin Gibb Oh Darlin'. I really like the Bee Gees version of Nowhere Man because they sound like, oh, it's the Bee Gees doing a Beatles song rather yeah, than it's a Beatles cover band doing a song. Yeah, same as Aerosmith's Come Together. It's like, yeah. this sounds like an Aerosmith song. And God to get you my life. I'm going to wax poetic about it later. But I, I, I ask that because I, I think it's the thing that stands out in this movie is like the songs are good. Yeah. But this is now my my moment to get on a soapbox here for a minute. Because I got to talk about music critics, let's say, pre-1990s. Uh, critics did not agree that this music was good back in 1978. Rolling really? Stone gave the soundtrack zero out of five stars. And in 1983, Dave Marsh wrote in the Rolling Stone record guide, quote, two million people bought this album, which proves that P.T. Barnum was right and that euthanasia may have untapped possibilities. Fuck you, dude. All right, relax. This is, how often do you go back and look at like reviews of like, oh, I love this album from 1972. And then it's like, what the fuck? People hated this album? Why? Yeah, that's so weird. It happens. It's like 50-50 when you go back in time to like, especially this era where we're now 10 years, 10, 15 years deep into rock and roll being like the musical genre. Like it is, it is, it is the most popular genre and rock. Well, critics, God gave rock and roll to us. Yeah, exactly. As we all know. Which means George Burns gave us all rock and roll. Man. And that thus, that's why he's in this movie. 
full circle. Thank you. Thank you, George Burns. Exactly. For all that you gave the world, including rock and roll. and I gave uh, you rock and roll. <laughs> uh, the self-appointed dean of American rock critics, Robert Christigau, gave it a D plus, saying, I never thought Alice Cooper would stoop to a Paul Williams imitation. Pause here. Is this an insult to Alice Cooper or to Paul Williams? Because either way, fuck it off. Sounds like an ins- it sounds like an insult to Paul Williams. Right. But also, with all respect to Alice Cooper, I've seen Alice Cooper live, and he puts on an incredible show. I'm saying, like, if you see, like, sometimes they'll do those concerts where, like, radio stations will just, like, have on their website, like, sign up for this thing, you'll probably get this concert for free, and you'll win it or whatever, or it's, like, 15 bucks, and you can see, like, Alice Cooper plus, like, another metal band plus, like, another band, like, Queensryche or something. That's what I think I saw. Queensryche, Alice Cooper, and Heaven and Hell, so I got to see Dio sing, which is great. But, point is... Alice Cooper and his entire band put on an incredible show. The drummers are spinning their the drummer spinning his sticks and flying them in the air in the middle of songs, like literally like throwing his stick in the air, ten feet in the air, and then doing like a fill with one hand, catching it and continuing, like stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So, with all due respect to Alice Cooper's music, he is a showman first and foremost. He is not. Uh, he is not like he's. He does. If you think Alice Cooper is taking himself so seriously that he wouldn't stoop to the level of doing it, like what are you talking about? We're talking about Alice Cooper, you douche. Like, what do you mean? Exactly. Exactly. Every single critic of this era has this. It's just they're the most, the biggest snobs, and it drives me nuts when I go through. These reviews, like, it's like critics of this era were so fearful of liking music that was even the slightest bit uncool that they make, like, like pitchfork reviews look forgiving. Uh, Yeah, it just absolutely, I just hate it. It's the entire industry seemed to be populated with the collection of, like, the most pretentious people society could churn out. And maybe critics are now too forgiving, but... I would rather the music critics of to, I would rather have, have the music critics of today than dudes who couldn't just listen to this album and be like, that was fun, wasn't it? Really talented artists doing covers of great music. Isn't that fun? Instead of just yeah. being like, oh, how dare they? Oh, my God, the Gibbs singing the Beatles. How could they? Fucking yeah. enjoy it. Anyway, yeah. All right. This is and putting my soapbox away. It's just, it's just so funny. It'd be like, I don't know. Like, it sounds like they're they're talking about completely different things. Like, oh, the Bee Gees doing covers. Oh, it's just like they're the Bee Gees. Like, they're like dance music. Right. Right. It's not like he's like, you know. I can't believe Bob Dylan would cover a Justin Bieber song. Like, I, okay, I see where you're coming from with that kind of criticism. <laughs> and, and, and the Bee Gees, and, and maybe this is part of the criticism, the Bee Gees for years were seen as a Beatles copycat. And maybe now it's like, oh, suddenly they get big and then they think they could just cover the Beatles' greatest songs. Huh? Who do they think they are? So they're, I, I feel like they are simultaneously being just huge snobs and also being gatekeepers to the Beatles' catalog, which is just like, fuck off. <laughs> like, honestly. Yeah. Oh, God. It, they drive me nuts. Absolutely drives me nuts. All right, now that I've gotten that off my chest. Let's be clear about the thing that is okay to trash about this thing, and that's the movie itself, because the movie is not good. 
<laughs> it's very bad. It's a disaster. Early in production, Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees uh, certainly didn't endear himself to fans of the Beatles. When he said of performing the legendary band's music for the movie, quote, There is no such thing as the Beatles now. They don't exist as a band and never performed Sgt. Pepper Live in any case. When ours comes out, it will be, in effect, as if theirs never existed. Okay, maybe now I see why critics were a little harsh <laughs> to begin with. That's a hell of a statement. Uh, oh, yeah, and apparently uh, Robert Stigwood envisioned the film as 1978's answer to MGM musicals of yesteryear, while simultaneously also being that generation's answer to Gone with the Wind. He's on record saying that. No pressure, everybody. Just go make Singing in the Rain, plus the biggest movie of all time, and everyone will be fine. No pressure. Hmm. You know, it's like a trend in this month of movies is absolutely delusional people thinking, oh, let's yeah. just take these really popular songs and we're going to have the biggest movie of all time. doesn't work that way. There's a certain, you know, uh, when you become, let's say, the Beatles or, you know, another large, you know, the Who, the, the Village People, there comes a certain time in fame when you think, I think I could do anything. Right. I mean, John Lennon thought that he could make sex noises with Yoko Ono for three hours and people would buy it. Oh, yeah. The Beatles are the epitome of we could do whatever we want. Oh, yeah. Exactly. exactly. We all live in a yellow submarine, man. I mean, but it was great. Let's, let's, it was. Be, let's be honest. But, and the movie but itself. The, the, but to even come up with that. Right. To just be like, we're going to write a song. And what are the lyrics? We all live in a yellow submarine. Okay, continue. That sounds weird, but continue. A yellow submarine. Go on. A yellow submarine. What? What? What else is there? <laughs> we all live in a yellow. Okay, I think oh, yeah. I get the point. So you know, what I mean, like, of course, it's not all. They're not all going to be terrible. A lot. Of, some of them are going to be good. But the point is to even get to that headspace where you're like, this is the kind of song I'm going to write. Takes a lot of balls to begin with. And you, you a don't, you lot don't of drugs as well. Yes, as I, well. I think we need to be clear. People are doing so much drugs, so many drugs at this time. Even sometimes unbeknownst to them, they're taking a ton of drugs. <laughs> yeah, at some point I'm like, man, I just love how they just start speeding up parts of the film because they're like, oh, keep it moving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Still with uh, two of the biggest comedy stars of the era on board for this movie, uh, the aforementioned George Burns, and, of course, Steve Martin, who uh, his Wild and Crazy, was it, his album, what is it, Wild and Crazy Guy is his big comedy album, would that be the one? Mm -hmm. uh, so. Was a huge hit that year. It was at the top of the Billboard charts. I think it reached number two. Massive, massive hit. Steve Martin, a breakout star, I, I, almost as much as the Bee Gees in the exact same year. You've got, of course, Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees, the Beatles catalog. A cast and crew felt like this movie was going to be a hit. And then production started. Just two weeks into filming, the Beatles saw the, excuse me, the Bee Gees saw the writing on the wall. The Beatles saw the writing on the wall a hell of a lot earlier. Uh, they tried to back out of the film, but to no avail. Uh, apparently, some of the, I think Barry Gibb was on record uh, maybe about 10 or 12 years ago saying, two days into production, he realized the movie was going to fail. Nice. <laughs> you excited about this project, Barry? <laughs> <laughs> the best part, too, is knowing that, having that knowledge in my head before watching this movie, there are moments where you look at the way the Bee Gees are acting 
They don't give a fuck. Well, one of them stares right into the camera during one scene. Oh, yeah. I think They're it was all, Maurice's... When the women are, yes. When the women are singing the song to them, he literally just looks at it and goes, smiles like, hey, I'm in a movie. <laughs> Maurice gives little, like, cheeky look into the camera, the eyebrow raise, like, hey, hey, look at what we're doing, everybody. That being said, Barry Gibb in this movie, it feels like even though he obviously did not want to be in it uh, when they started filming, I feel like he's having a blast in, yeah. like, in kind of like the way of, like, I'm on vacation right now and none of this matters. Well, yeah, but it's, like, it's yeah. exactly it. Once they all realized, oh, we're in a piece of shit right now, that it was just full license to do whatever they wanted and just yeah. be as goofy as possible, which almost was the best thing for them to do at this point. Just be super weird. Yeah. Also, uh, I've been mentioning sort of, uh, you know, in jest that, hey, there's a lot of drugs floating around. Well, guess what? There were a ton of drugs floating around the set of this movie. The Bee Gees, by the way, had just started to kick a drug addiction habit. They were shocked to find that tons of crew members were just casually carrying around bags uh, of cocaine while filming the movie. To make matters worse, Robin Robin Gibb, who had become dependent on sleeping bills, couldn't take any and basically did not sleep during almost the entirety of the production. List of problems just goes on and on. Uh, Frampton and the Gibbs were hesitant to even work with each other. They weren't sure how their sounds uh, were going to to work together. They thought they would clash. The dialogue for Frampton and the and the Bee Gees was completely taken out of the script. They were supposed to talk in this movie, and then they realized, oh wait a minute, you're from Heartland, USA. You, Peter Frampton's British. The Bee Gees are Australian, and they can't hide their accents. <laughs> What are we doing? So great. So great. So very, very, er, very early on, right before they start producing, they reworked the script so that they wouldn't have to talk. And finally, when informed that uh, Aerosmith leading man Steven Tyler was supposed to be killed by Peter Frampton in the movie, guitarist Joe Perry said, quote, there's no fucking way that Steven is going to get directly offed by Frampton. (laughs) Uh, as a person who has met both Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, I will say that 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 sounds very. Uh, I, I met him at a meet and greet, so I had like a, a minute or two to talk to them. And Joe Perry, I could just picture him saying that because Joe Perry is very like, he's very nice, but he's also like, especially at the time, this is okay. Like the Aerosmith, for people who aren't too familiar with Aerosmith, they were called the Toxic Twins, Joe Perry and and Steven Tyler. Not toxic in the way we think of it today, as in they were spouting racism <laughs> or anything like that, but they were heavily, heavily drugged. Steven Tyler, I remember on a Behind the Music, I think, said, uh, what happened all my money? It went straight up my nose, baby. <laughs> like, it's so... <laughs> so, th- these are two guys who are, especially at this time, like, they're such they're so big at this point. I can see him being like, no, we're not going to get killed by Peter fucking Frampton. Like, I mean, but Peter but, Frampton at this point is gigantic. But, but I think, but this they also, are yeah. rock stars, right? 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 And Peter We're, Frampton is a is you know a dude that chicks listen to. Like that's what th- this is. That is a completely different yeah. thing. It's one thing if he was like, "You're gonna get killed by by Mick Jagger." Steven Tyler would be like, "Hey, all right." You know what I mean? Like that's one thing. But to be like Peter Frampton, fuck you. <laughs> that's not happening. <laughs> I love how it even speaks to like they agreed to be in the movie. They knew it was gonna start Peter Frampton, and even then. The disdain for Peter Frampton, just it, it, they, it, they can't help, but c- they can't contain it. I, like I'll be in a movie with Peter Frampton, but no way is Peter Frampton getting one up over on me. <laughs> That's not yeah. happening. So of course, what happens instead? 
they have Sandy Farina's character, Strawberry Fields, uh, kill him, <laughs> which they were like, that's fine. Just not yeah. Frampton. Can't be Frampton. Yeah. Anything but Frampton. Apparently, the original script had it that he was going to fall off accidentally. Then they changed it to Frampton. They said, not a fucking chance. Yeah. And at that point, they're like, we already we already recorded the studio version of this song. Yeah, exactly. So, would you like to replace us? Okay. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. already had to replace us. You already had to. You're, we were already your second choice after Kiss, so. Yeah. Who do you Which, want? By the way. Sha-na-na? I know, I know a lot of people love Kiss, but really? Aerosmith, you're a second choice after Kiss. I mean, Fuck if you're thinking you. about if you're thinking about the image, yeah, and they want the evil band, right? That Kiss, makes uh, more sense. But the song itself, Aerosmith, Kiss would not have nearly done justice to come together like like Aerosmith did. Yeah, I think Aerosmith is great in this movie. By the way, I love Aerosmith in this movie. They're again, they're one of the highlights. The song is great. It's it's it is that version is a. I would put it probably top three Beatles cover. Yeah. I think this movie has two of the top three Beatles covers of all time. Two of the three. What's the other one? Uh, Got to Get You Into My Life, which I think, for my money, Paul, the best Beatles cover by a lot. Like, it's so good. I think it's better than the original version. Ooh. I would put- You, Cody, that's- and then I would put Joe Cocker's with a little help from my friends as number two. Oh yeah, see, so yeah. And then I th- and then I think I put Aerosmith come together number three. There's a Tay Jude cover that I really like, but I can't remember who sings it. Mm-hmm. But it's like a but it's like a R and B like Motowny version of Hey Jude. I'm, I, I, I you know what? Come to think of it, I, it's tough. I I I think I'm putting Aerosmith come together number three, but also uh, Stevie Wonder's We Can Work It Out might also be my number three. It's tough. There you go. There's my top four. Whatever order right. you want, but for sure, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Got to Get You My Life, is number one. It's such a kick-ass song. So good. So this film is released in the summer of 1978 to absolutely abysmal reviews, uh, and it either derailed or ruined the careers of much of the primary, ca- much of the primary cast and crew. Longtime UK comic star Frankie Howard is making his film debut, U.S. film debut in this movie as the film's primary antagonist, Mr. Mustard. Uh, he subsequently never acts in the United States ever again. Uh, Sandy Farina makes her film debut in this movie. She go on to appear in only two more movies, although she still works in Hollywood as a session singer. Peter Frampton, arguably the biggest rock star in the world, just a year prior saw his popularity fade over the next decade thanks to this movie, a string of commercial failures on the Billboard charts, multiple major accidents, uh, including a near-fatal car accident, and then a plane crash that actually killed three people on his tour and destroyed almost his entire touring cargo. Frampton would um, come back alive thanks to... (laughs) Working with David Bowie uh, for the 1987 album Never Let Me Down. Uh, He also went on tour with Bowie that year, and he said that it basically saved his career. The Bee Gees also crashed and burned, but that's because of Disco's death, not really of this movie. In fact, the group had three more number one singles in a row after uh, this movie comes out with their 1979 album Spirits Having Flown. That gave the group six straight number one hits in total, a feat only accomplished by, coming full circle, the Beatles. Eventually, Whitney Houston broke the record with seven straight number one singles. Uh, I just want to throw out there, the cover I'm thinking of is Wilson Pickett covering Hey Jude. Oh, wow. I don't think I know that one. 
Yeah, it's uh, an incredibly great uh, song. Uh, Released in 1969. Wow. Great, great cover. I'll listen to that one. I will definitely listen to that one. I love a good Beatles cover. Yeah, it's it's a very like slowed down uh, soul version of it, and it's really, really good. Speaking of those Beatles, you've probably noticed by now that there are four names that haven't really come up much yet. That would be, of course, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, the actual Beatles. That's probably because that's the way they'd like it. Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr did attend the film's premiere and almost immediately shunned the film. Do you have George Harrison's quote about I it? do. I do. I'm going to get to okay. that in just a second. I, 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 I think it's great. It's a great quote. John Lennon refused to see the film, but in a twisted bit of kismet, Lennon apparently had to endure the movie as an in-flight film while traveling from Rome back to New York in January of 1979. According to legend, the film was played twice since the flight had to be delayed due to a snowstorm in New York. Love it. And as you mentioned, George Harrison also refused to see the movie, but like a good Hare Krishna, he seemed to uh, maybe have a more thoughtful take. Uh, on the film, noting that everyone who worked on the movie tried their best to make the movie a success, but stating about Frampton and the BD specifically, quote, I think it's damaged their images and their careers, and they didn't need to do that. It's just like the Beatles trying to do the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones can do it better. He's not wrong. Yeah. It's a fair point. It's funny how to say ruin their careers. It ruined (laughs) their career. Okay, maybe not the uh, best uh, practices of, you know, Hare Krishna and (laughs) <laughs> Maybe not. Oh. <laughs> yes, yeah, so as fate would have it, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band would not be that generation's Gone with the Wind. Ironically, it was the other Beatles-centric movie released in 1978 that would have a profound impact on the future of Hollywood. The film I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was a movie centering around a group of teenagers caught up in Beatlemania in the early 60s, was the first movie ever produced by Steven Spielberg. He convinced Universal Studios to let him pick an unknown filmmaker by the name of Robert Zemeckis to write and direct the film. Spielberg would go on to produce five of Zemeckis' next six directorial efforts, including Back to the, Fu- the Back to the Future trilogy and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So, almost wow. got it with, you know, hey, this Beatles movie is going to have an impact up there with Gone with the Wind. Not that Beatles movie. The other one. Well, we're not talking about I Want to Hold Your Hand. We're talking about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And let's kick things off in August of 1918. The world's still at war, Paul. And we enter the tiny village of uh, Flu de Huh. Narrator Mr. Kite, played by George Burns, describes the most decorated soldiers in the war. Their names were Sergeant Pepper and his Lonely Hearts Club Band, who also entertained many of the other soldiers, and eventually the good folk of their hometown, Heartland, USA, uh, with music through the years. Now, as an older man, Sergeant Pepper is set to be honored with a statue by Mr. Kite, who also happens to be the mayor of Heartland. But just as Sergeant Pepper begins playing his final performances, he drops dead. <laughs> Off to a rousing start. I, I love the beginning of this. I, was I like, do, oh, too. It's funny. Great. It's I was like, funny. this is going to be great. <laughs> I was I was still I was still like excitement level was still up. It's very goofy. It's very um uh, you know, uh, it almost yeah, very uh, almost python-esque sort of humor here at the very beginning. We learn that his grandson Billy Shears, played by Peter Frampton, is appointed the successor to the band, much to the chagrin of his jealous stepbrother Dougie, played by Paul Nicholas, who 
was also in The Who's Tommy. By the way, Oliver Reed was supposed to be in this movie, uh, but he and Robert Stigwood did not have a good relationship, apparently, after Tommy. Okay. Yeah. Along with his friends, brothers Mark, Dave, and Bob Henderson, Barry, Robin, and Maurice Skibb, they take the reins 20 years after Sgt. Pepper's untimely demise and make their Heartland debut, playing this title song of the film and album. Oh, yeah, the instruments are magical. I probably should mention that. Um, (laughs) What they do? What's the magic? No one really knows, but they're magical. Don't know. And then we get uh, the opening track of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Also, uh, with a little help from my friends. In case you didn't know, by the way, Billy's the one with the overalls that say Billy. Just in case you didn't know. Yes. I think they did that so people wouldn't watch it and just be like, oh, it's Peter Frampton. That's a good point. So, but why yeah. did they do it? But, and I guess the Bee Gees at that point were like, Saturday Night, they, while they were making it, Saturday Night Fever wasn't a thing yet. So I guess, anyway. Also, I'm, uh, I'm, I apologize to Peter Frampton's hairstylist. Um, man, it's really obvious. I'm like, Peter, get some hair tips from the Gibbs. It's like, your hair's not terrible. It's just a lot frizzier. Like, you're standing uh, next to Barry Gibbs's perfect hair. It's oh, very, and, very and obvious. All the Bee Gees hair in this movie. Perfect. As a man, Cody, with long hair. Exquisite. Their hair. The featheriness. The fluffiness. Oh, my God. I'm so jealous. As they're the blowing in the wind. About when, they're, when they're playing and the hair is bouncing in unison. All the hair is connected as though they, were, they had a oneness, a togetherness. It's a thing of beauty. Beautiful. Again, beautiful. they uh, if Peter Frampton did not at least say, "Hey, what do you guys do? What what, what do you do with the hair? What's the secret?" You know. Yeah. Again, not that it's just terrible. It's just a little frizzier. You know. Get that thing. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So they perform the song. It's basically just a straight up uh, remake of the song. Nothing. The Bee Gees vocals complement it very well. Uh, and after the performance, the band gets a telegram from a big wig record exec who says he hears that they're good. Um which is, I guess, how record deals were signed back in the day, just purely on hearsay, not actual, like... He said, hey, I hear you're good. Send me a demo. <laughs> what? Uh, okay. Uh, as, as the band departs for big success in Hollywood, Mr. Kite daydreams about life as a big music star himself. I thought this is delightful. I will forever and always love George Burns' rendition of fixing a hole. Cody, when you said in, uh, for Tommy, I didn't know how much I needed uh, Jack Nicholson singing in your life. I didn't know how much I needed George Burns singing Fixing a Hole in my it's life. It's I mean, adorable. I mean, I know I shouldn't. I, I know I need to get away from like, oh, old people are cute. But like, come on now. George Burns on the little stage with his guitar going, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in. How adorable is that? <laughs> There's no other way to describe it. Uh, I love it. It's great. So great. What does it mean for the plot? Nothing. No. Zip. Zero. Zilch. It doesn't mean anything, but let's get George Burns singing a song because hell yeah. Uh, The band records their demo tape in, you know, the most ideal environment on a farm surrounded by chickens and cows as they perform the Beatles song Getting Better. Uh, Meanwhile... We meet mean Mr. Mustard as he's spying from afar uh, as we first learn of his plans to take over Heartland. Uh, At the same time, a lot of things happening here. L.A. record exec B.D. Hoffler, uh, who, by the way, uh, I forget the actor's name. Uh, I just had it. 
Uh, also featured in that would be a Donald Pleasence, uh, who is also featured uh, in Halloween. Most prominently is probably where uh, you might recognize him from. But B.D. Hoffler receives the band's demo tape and sends them to come over to L.A. to sign a deal. He puts them, of course, their picture in the folder that says Superstars. So, of course, the next day, uh, Strawberry Fields, uh, the girlfriend of Billy Shears, uh, sings George Harrison's iconic song, Here Comes the Sun, as Billy awakes as they all slept in that farm, and they're ready to travel in L.A. in the most effective way possible. Going up in a hot air balloon, crashing into a jet, and then hopping aboard a plane in midair. I'm assuming that's what happens? Yeah, it's a, it's a little fuzzy. <laughs> As to what the fuck is happening is. Right a very now. nice version of this song, by the way. I'm a little surprised. I, I mean, I don't know. I guess Sandy Farina didn't really get much acting in the way of acting in this movie. She has a very nice voice. Very oh, pleasant she's a voice. songwriter also. There she you wrote go. Kiss Me in the Rain for Barbara Streisand. Wow. Okay, I didn't realize that. She's currently a session singer for television commercials. Yep, yep. All right. Well, good for her. Oh, her version's great. I like this version. I do. Yeah. It's very nice, very sweet. See, that's, see, that's the great thing about when you, when you gender swap covers is that you can do the song pretty much the same, but just due to the fact that you have a female voice instead of a male voice, it makes it sound so much different. Yeah. So that's like the one beauty of gender swap covers is that it, it's always going to sound different no matter how true you stay to the original. And I love that. So, yeah, yeah, agreed. So somehow the boys survive a needless, needlessly difficult journey and they arrive in the city of angels. As they get off the plane, we hear the song, I want you, she's so heavy. And this is where clearly they're just putting a bunch of Beatles songs in here. And they're like, instead of writing the plot and then saying, where do certain songs fit? They put all the songs down and then said, how do we write a plot around this? Because yeah, which is wrong. You shouldn't do that. No, because it works for a second here. And then it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. So they're picked yeah. up by the airport by the record executive Hoffler uh, and the lead singer of his other big super group, uh, the all-girl group Lucy and the Diamonds. Uh, Lucy, played by Diane Steinberg. And that's, first of all, he's like talking out the, he's doing the sing talking, I want you, I want you so bad. Yeah. Very weird. Very weird. I like, uh, are they at dinner yet where you're at? They will be. Yeah. This is okay. that, this is that same scene where they're all signing the, uh, the, the contracts. It's like a montage scene. It's a very montage scene. This is the part where all of the guys are like, wow, look at all the sites of LA. Look at that strip club and porn shop. You know, all of the great sites of LA. Yeah. And all the while the Lucy and the diamonds are like at each place. They're like seeing them everywhere. And then they get to that big mansion. This is whenever they hit the chorus of this song, they clearly don't know what to do because they all just pause. They all stop in their tracks and do the she so they all just like pause for the music break. And then have the part where they look into the screen. <laughs> well, very it's very obvious. Very give at some point is just like he thinks it's coming earlier than it is. He's like, she's so hit. Yes, the way his face looks like, oh, oh my God, I, I want to say it, heavy. Like you almost see them like mouthing it's that it's about to come. They're like. <laughs> them all looking at the screen at the same time too kills me. It's That was the choice to do it. 
and I love it. It's so stupid and fun. It's it's so goofy. Uh, as you said, they're at the dinner, and uh, yeah, they are signing their lives away. Uh, as they're all signing the contract, and like suddenly their shirts change to the record label, a shirt with the record label logo on it. They all are having huge, comically sized glasses filled with all sorts of alcohol. He then yeah. drugs them. Yeah, well, they're they're literally uh, what is it like drinking from the golden chalice yes. of fame? You know yes, what I mean? That's, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what they're doing, man. Yeah. So then they drink from the giant cup, a giant yeah. golden chalice. Yeah, that's what they're yeah. gonna do. Uh, yeah, absolutely mad. Also, we find out then the next day they have a recording session. Which, man, why is the manager drugging all of them when he knows? He knows they all have an appointment the next day at the studio. Uh, you know what, Cody? I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there, and you might you might want to disagree with me, and I'm sorry if I'm going to split the audience here. This guy doesn't seem on the level. You might be onto something here, Paul. You I'm just, might you know, just be onto something. So, I don't know if it's a gold tooth. I don't know if it's right. the sunglasses. The big cowboy know. hat. Yeah. Yes. Something. Yeah. Doesn't seem right. All right. So they're all drugged and then seduced, of course, by Lucy and the Diamonds, as Hollywood has warped their innocent minds in just a matter of hours. The next day, the men wake up and they sing the song, Good Morning, Good Morning, as they all have a wicked hangover, but they head to the studio for their first recording session. And uh, all the while, we are seeing the band's first album getting pressed and released at the iconic Tower Records on Sun on the Sunset Strip. And of course, they literally were just, they probably at the end of production were like, oh yeah, just... Uh, just get some stock footage of uh, them making the album. Uh, that's that's how we're going to do that. So this is now the band is has arrived and they're starting to their fame is starting to rise. All of this happening very quickly. <laughs> the band makes their television debut as they sing the song Nowhere Man. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on purpose, but the song does sound like something the Bee Gees would have made. During the era that Nowhere Man comes out, during the Rubber Soul era, the mid '60s, uh, for the Beatles, it's a much more mellow, ballady version of the song, and I really like this version. Actually, I think it's a really nice version of, of Nowhere Man. Agreed. Uh, the montage continues as the, the Bee Gees and uh, Peter Frampton sing "Polythene Pam," and she came in through the bathroom window. Part of the uh, uh, the montage at the end of Abbey Road. Uh, we see the performance at an L.A. club as their star continues to rise. Also, very weird. Like, they were clearly trying to, like, intercut, like, ads and, and magazine covers of, like, the band's r star is beginning to rise. And then it cuts to Frampton singing, and it almost looks like the spread of a magazine, which stays yeah, that was, way way too long. It was very weird. I was like, what is, what is... It yeah. just it was aesthetically not pleasing. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was like if this was maybe a half second as you're like flipping through pages, I'd get it. But like, why are we on this for like thirty seconds or what like, felt am I, like? Am it? I meant to read the article? Right. I was literally. I think I read everything on the page, and I was like, okay, we can go away from here now. We're done here. It's weird. Anyway, uh, finally they perform the second to last song on Sgt. Pepper, the Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band reprise uh, as. They are on a television performance. Their star has now grown even larger. And back in Heartland, Strawberry Fields watches sadly as she misses Billy more and more. As we hear the long and winding road playing as she's reminiscing about their past. And then <laughs> across town, meanwhile, 
Mean Mr. Mustard is uh, still waiting for orders to carry out his plan, which is, of course, to steal the magical instruments and send them to other generic evildoers. And to, uh, what is it, take over Heartland? Is that yeah, it? also to take over Heartland. Um, you know, why? Who knows? Uh, he's aided by his British sidekick, literally named Brute, uh, played by Carol Struckian, who is probably best known for his roles in The Addams Family. Uh, and then he also had some smaller but memorable roles uh, in Twin Peaks and Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, also, uh, Paul, you know, when the Beatles were writing Mean Mr. Mustard, I'm sure this is exactly what they envisioned for it to be performed as, sung by mm -hmm. robots massaging an old man. Yeah. Uh, isn't the robots the Bee Gees as well? Uh, from what I gathered, I don't think so. Uh, maybe the the music, the song, the the um, the voices are. Okay, the voices are yes. I'm not sure. Okay, the, the voices uh, the voices are the Bee Gees when they're just talking. My goodness. <laughs> when they're singing, it almost just I don't know. I don't know about the technology back then of like robot singers, but um, yeah, the technology of robots. <laughs> <laughs> what what has this podcast evolved into today? <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, Paul, did you ever think that when we started this podcast, there would be a day where we talk about uh, a, a Beatles movie where three of the songs sound like they were plucked out of the Main Street Electrical Parade? Oh, man. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> Uh, also, yeah, very nice of the LSD computer overlord to let uh, Mr. Mustard keep the drums as he's telling him which, uh, where to take all the instruments. And then Heartland sees its darkest hour, turning a farmer's market into <gasps> an arcade. Oh, God, the humanity. Uh, also, uh, when they did the final wide shot of like a now completely uh, depraved uh, Heartland, did you recognize what that set looked like? I'm about 99% positive. So I, I looked this up. I do not believe it's the Back to the Future set. I was about to say, it looks, it looks exactly like Hill like Valley. Hill, it looks like Hill Valley. Like, exactly like Hill Valley. Yeah, I believe this one was on, let me see. I think this one's the MGM lot. Okay. Uh, but let me just double check. So that would not be the case. Damn. I saw it. I was like, oh, there it is. That's Hill Valley. I thought the same thing. I was yeah. like, that's got to be it. It looked... I mean, so many sets have this. Um, we've both done that Warner Brothers studio tour. Oh, yeah, when you go to the Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Uh, sit, Which, where, like, they also... By the way, they spend entirely way too much time there. And I understand it's a bit bigger. There's more room to walk around. But it's like, why are we spending, like, 25 minutes here and then five minutes looking at Batmobiles? It should be the reverse. Like, great, it's a set. I, I see it. Gilmore Girls. Got it. Where's, also, where's uh, Michael the, Keaton's Batmobile? Can I see also, that? Also the inside of the friend's house uh, is there. Yes. And yes. Desperate Housewives. Again. The Flash. I, I need to see where George Clooney rested his bat nipples. Where is that car? That's yeah, this one, this one, yeah, M Heartland USA was built on MGM Studios. All right, so, so this not, is not Hill Valley from Back to the Future. Nope. Well, it looks like it. Yeah, a, a lot of studios, I think, back in, they all kind of look like this. So after seeing what Mr. Mustard has turned the town into and after stealing the instruments, Strawberry Fields decides she has to go get 
the band back to, together to help Heartland USA as we hear the song She's Leaving Home. And um, again, I really uh, just love that the Beatles' most sentimental and, and mature song um it sounds like this, like I said, it, how it would sound in the Main Street Electrical Parade. Um, so here you go, just as Paul and John had uh, had wanted. And yes, she she leaves home. The parents uh, are are shocked as she takes the bus to L.A. Mister Mustard is alerted that she's leaving home, and they follow her to Los Angeles. Uh, when Strawberry arrives, she sees the billboard of her friends next to a billboard of Lucy and the Diamonds, and she daydreams. This is where you get the uh, the scene we talked about where her eyes just get wide, and she starts daydreaming about what the boys might be up to with those devious Hollywood ladies seducing them. Uh, as uh, Lucy and the Diamonds sing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I like this I, I like this version uh, of this song. I think it's... Uh, I uh, Imagine with Donna Summer. Man, I didn't kick that. Not that this is a bad version at all. It's a very good version. But holy shit, been really cool with uh, with Donna Summer. And yeah, this is also the moment where uh, Maurice Gibbs does a little eyebrow raise of like, hey, hey, we're yeah. in a movie, everybody. Hey, movie time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she snaps out of it, and she eventually finds the band recording their latest hit, uh, oh, a cover of Oh, Darling. Uh, and uh, she gets Billy to come out of the recording session, tells him what's happened to Heartland. He runs back to the studio to tell the guys one by one, and they all leave the recording session to go save their hometown, which is a shame that all of this shit is happening because, again, know which songs you need to focus on. The moment this song starts, those first couple of notes, you're like, ooh, they are, they're on to something here. This is good. This is really good. I love this version of this song, and... The film version is just like distracted with all this nonsense going on. Uh, literally one of the best songs so far. It's it's just filled with all these distractions. Anyway, uh, George Burns in a rocking chair tells us that the gang is back together. They steal Mr. Mustard's robot RV, and then they learn the whereabouts of the magical instruments as they're Can on. I yes. Add one thing. You go ahead and add whatever you like. I will say this about this movie. Um. The addition of a narrator greatly helps. Yes. Uh, because unlike Tommy, where sometimes I was like, what's happening now? I at least have someone, especially the soothe sounds of George Burns' voice, to tell me what the fuck is going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Even when he's describing it, it's like, he's just saying gobbledygook right now. <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> at least I know what gobbledygook is coming. Yeah. Like hearing hearing George Burns saying to find the FVB, like the what now? Yeah. <laughs> so yes, they are now on their way to Doctor Doctor Maxwell Edison's to grab the cornet, and that's where we get the song Maxwell's Silver Hammer. So Steve Martin as Doctor Maxwell Edison, who basically he's doing an audition uh, for the dentist in Little Shop of Horrors, uh, that of course he portrayed many years later. It's essentially what he's doing here. Well, I thought it was really weird because when he walked in, uh, he just started going, "I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight, for my monster from a slab began to rise. I did the mash. Uh, yeah, he's doing the monster mash voice." It's great. I'm, I love it so much. It's so it's, silly. It's uh, the first thing I thought right when we started thinking about is it's the monster match. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again. So if well, you ever I mean, hear... why wouldn't you copy it? It's a graveyard smash. 
You, you <laughs> could not have said it better. Just a stroke of genius, really, uh, on all ends. It just yes. what what a call. Uh, absolutely fantastic. The former murderous quack turned brainwashing plastic surgeon fights the intruders with his electric silver hammer. Also, you could tell. You that- mean in order to get a jolt from my electrodes? He did the mash. <laughs> You could tell, by the way, Star Wars is still in everyone's collective consciousness uh, where they're swinging the hammers. Did you hear the zoom, oh, yeah. zoom, zoom, the lightsaber sounds as they're fighting each other? Yeah, I was like, what, what's happening right ridiculous. now? I'm so confused. So ridiculous. Uh, Billy gets shocked for the first of many times, but uh, and then as Dr. Maxwell Essen escapes, he leaves behind the cornet, and they move on to the next evildoer. Oh, yeah, they also find a drum back in the van, so that's two down. Um, then we... <laughs> Yeah. We're like, yeah, here's the drum. Uh, Luckily, the drum was already in the van. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Next, we meet Marvin's son, formerly known as Marvin Skunk, played by Alice Cooper, as he performs the uh, very ethereal, trippy Beatles song, Because... Rocking uncharacteristically, uh, almost a, a Zappa mustache. I was about to say he looks like Frank Zappa here. He looks like Frank Zappa in this movie. If, if apparently when he first was recording the song, he was trying to evoke John Lennon, and then George Martin said, "No, just do it like Alice Cooper would do it. That's what we want." Yeah. But really, he's kind of evoking Frank Zappa in everything he's doing here. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, with of course the Alice Cooper twist. He performs the song presented as a subliminal message to the FVB's newly brainwashed army of children recruited from Sun's Day as a school crossing guard to take over the world. I swear to God, this is a real movie and not just a fever dream I had last night. I swear. Anyway, Alice Cooper performs this as only he could. The gang cranks up the speakers, torching the already tormented children with high pitch frequencies ringing through their ears. Like, they don't even save them. They're just like, well, now you're all going to be deaf, uh, and we're just going to leave you here to die uh, with this uh, really high-pitched frequency ringing through your ear. But yeah, oh, boo-hoo, Billy gets electrocuted again. Like, that's what we're supposed to feel bad about. Think of the kids. Alice Cooper gets punched in the face and falls uh, face-first into a meringue. Of course, uh, the most comedic of all pies. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, without question. Billy is unconscious back in the van, so Strawberry Field sings a song seemingly about herself to wake him up from his slumber. Strawberry Fields forever. Again, if her name was like Rita. If she was named Rita and Strawberry Fields was a place they used to go to. This also works. he's, He's out and she starts singing about all the fucking time they had at Strawberry Fields. Right. They were like, we have to put Strawberry Fields in the movie. Overthinking it. By the way, this leads me to, we're going to talk about it eventually, when we eventually talk about Across the Universe. The part of that movie, the the first time I watched it, where I audibly groaned, was when they're like, Prudence, come out of the bathroom. Prudence, why aren't you coming out? I don't want to come out today. Dear Prudence. Like, oh, fuck off. Fuck off. Ugh. Oh, man. I hated it so much. <laughs> That's also, um, it just really just leads me to a, another tangent. The thing I hate about these types of musicals is they're just like, it's lazy to just like, what do we name them? Well, I don't know. Strawberry Fields. 
Mr. Yeah. Mustard. Like, try harder. Yeah. You know the, the other one that does this? Do you remember the Queen Broadway musical? Yeah. That I believe one of the guys was named, uh, like, they're all named after characters in Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. Which I'm like, oh, God. Fucking stop. I hate it. I, I it's It's... If you're going to make a rock and roll musical about a certain artist, try yeah. a little harder than naming. Like, even do something like name one of the characters Pete Best, for all I care. If you're going to name a, 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 do a Beatles musical, be like, haha, what a cheeky little reference. That's fine. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the American Idiot musical has, uh, is guilty of this as well. They do it too. There yeah, you go. Like, uh, there's St. Jimmy. And, uh, they even the girl doesn't have a name because she's, her name is What's Her Name because that's the name of the song. Now, that one, though, because American Idiot does sort of follow a storyline, a loose storyline. But, but, but still, right. what's-her-name could have a name. Yeah, that's that's a little much. It's a yeah. little much. I don't know. Just I, I get it when it's something like a rock opera where there are real characters that have to have a name. I get that, clearly. But, like, yeah, just being like, the mayor is Mr. Kite, so we can sing for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Like, okay, I get it, I guess. With the band off gallivanting around the country trying to recover magical instruments, they've left manager B.D. Hoffler in a tight spot as he has to start canceling all of their shows as they're off on their adventure that, uh, you know, I'm sure must be very important. In an effort to please both parties, uh, stepbrother Dougie Shear is also sort of a represent, uh, also like a, uh, I don't know, I don't even know what he is. He's their manager? Hoffler's more the record exec head and Dougie's sort of, I don't know, whatever. It's never really stated what he is. I'm going to call him their manager. But he sets up a benefit concert for Heartland, featuring some of the biggest names in music to help revitalize the town. You know, you could almost call it a benefit for Mr. Kite. So we get the song being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Yep. There have been two Beatles musicals that have both included this song. Like, there are so many other great Beatles songs. Like, I get it. Everyone wants to do a big circus number, and this gives you an excuse to do it, but let's restrain ourselves with the next one, guys. If there's another Beatles musical in the next 15, 20 years, and this song is in it, tr you're not trying hard enough. There are so many choices. <laughs> I'll take this version over Bono's Across the Universe version any day, though, because uh, that this one features George Burns dancing, and the other one doesn't. There you go. Deal breaker for me. I think I I think I uh, rewinded the movie about three times just to see George Burns do his little can can step. I loved it. Also, apparently Peter Frampton begged to jump on the trampoline, and they didn't let him because he wasn't properly insured. Oh my god, <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, the concert's about to kick off. Dougie heads to Hoffer's Hoffler's room and steals literal bags of cash made from the concert. And uh, you never give me your money. Get song. Uh, I think that's the plot. I think that's what's happening here. Yeah. I, I was a little confused. I was like, why is he taking the money? Yeah. Also, here's a bunch of bags of cash. Let's sing You Never Give Me Your Money. Subtlety is not this film's strong suit. <laughs> uh... There's a part of me that was like half expecting like, and the next scene, George Burns is is dressed in a walrus suit and he sings I Am the Walrus. Feels like a missed opportunity, honestly. And he's on a train. Cuckoo, kachoo. <laughs> <laughs> Taking the cigar out of his mouth. Cuckoo, uh, kachoo. Uh, oh, man, that would have been something. I am the walrus. 
So the benefit concert kicks off with a bang as Earth, Wind, and Fire are there and they perform their version of Got to Get You Into My Life. Again, I will, I've already said it. I'll say it again. This is my favorite Beatles cover. I love this cover. It's, it's the best song in the movie, if you ask me. Fantastic. Love this song. Great performance as well. All the while, Strawberry is getting kidnapped by Mr. Mustard. When the gang notices that she's gone, uh, they leave the benefit to find her. Uh, how do they leave the benefit, Cody? The, what, they just storm out of there, right? Oh, no, don't they leave in a hot air balloon? Yes, Cody. They a bolt of lightning shoots and they oh, appear yeah. in the and they appear in the hot air balloon and then they float away. <laughs> I feel like we'd be doing an injustice You're right. not to bring You're up absolutely that. Absolutely right. Because <laughs> it's right. like what just happened? Why did this happen? We have Here to go get are. her in that car. There are many cars available. Mm, no. Our preferred method of travel is hot air balloon. We have to stay on brand here. We we don't know it yet, but they're going to be in a hot air balloon eventually. So we need to be in a hot air balloon. That's true. <laughs> That's how this movie should have ended. A great hot air balloon chase. Like many classic films before it. Like many classic films before All great films. I mean, don't we all remember the end of Casablanca where they all escape in hot air balloons? Yeah. Yeah. So we all remember. Everyone remembers it's a mad, 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 mad world. Well, there's, yes. And then, of course, there are the actual hot air balloon uh, centric movies. My favorite subgenre of movie. Yes. Hot air balloon centric. That's actually, uh, this is a good time to bring up my uh, new podcast venture. That's that's ballooning. It's my hot air balloon movie podcast. It's, uh, you can check us out at <laughs> that's ballooning pod at Twitter. <laughs> the first 10 episodes we'll be discussing in. <laughs> excruciating detail uh, around the world in, in 80 days. Yes. Both versions. Oh, yeah. We plan on it. Yeah. So uh, at this point, Strawberry Fields is been kidnapped in Mr. Mustard's van. Also, uh, somehow, Lucy and Dougie have hopped aboard. Who gives a shit about them at this point? They're so inconsequential to the plot, and yet they keep dragging them along. Yeah, I don't understand what, what's happening with them. Like I said, at this point, this is all superfluous because I, I thought the movie was about to end. So. Yeah, exactly. They're, hey, benefit for Mr. Kite. Here's Earth, Wind, and Fire. The end. No. Okay, we're going to keep going. Uh, Mr. Mustard sings to his damsel in distress as this film ruins a genuinely lovely song and turns it into an anthem for pedophiles. Yeah, I was like, what is happening? This is the Why one is song. Why is this song being sang? I love the soundtrack. I love the quirkiness and weirdness. This is the one song where I'm like, big mistake. I don't get it. This, Paul, is like that scene, quote unquote, from Clockwork Orange that ruins singing in the rain. I would argue yeah. this is worse. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't uh, I, I, but, I say it in jest. But, yeah, I don't understand how the main part of this movie is a love story between two people. And those two people aren't singing when I'm 64 to each other. Ridiculous. I, I, nothing about this makes sense. And it's just it's just creepy as hell. I mean, like, especially one of them's getting rich and famous. Don't you think it would be a little banter of a song to talk about, like, you know, will you still love me? When right. I'm, like, you know, when I'm not rich and famous, when I'm, when I, when I'm 64. Like, that could be, like... Again, thinking about this shit way too hard. Way too hard. Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot, lot of, of things scenario for someone to sing the song. It's like, or you could just listen to the song. And go, what's the song about? Oh, it's about this. Okay, why don't we just apply it to a 
thing that's in the movie. Then. Yeah, instead of it, instead of warping its message for a creepy yeah. old man. The fuck? <laughs> I don't understand. Oh. Anyway, a lot of shit's going on here. Uh, most of it means nothing. Lucy and Dougie are stuck in Mr. Mustard's van trying to steal money. They get caught. Meanwhile, the gang follows the van in their hot air balloon. Uh, and then they head to the lair of the FVB, which we learn stands for Future Villain Band. What yeah. the fuck does that even mean? I don't even care, baby, because... Yes. Another fantastic cover that rivals the original, Come Together. Yeah, I, this is such a good version. I love it. I doubt the Kiss version uh, would have been as good as this one. So ultimately, oh, God, no. the correct choice was made. Yeah, so Billy and the boys arrive, and then they fight the FVB, who are attempting to turn Strawberry into a groupie. <laughs> That's their great villainous plot, is she'll be a groupie. What? <laughs> like, okay. Is that, like, is she going to die? No. All right, whatever. In the struggle between Billy and Steven Tyler, Strawberry pushes Steven Tyler off the stage and to his death. Uh, she is shocked at what she's done, <laughs> and this fall, she get, she she faints and falls off the stage, and I laughed <laughs> way too hard at the way she fell off the stage. A very clearly fake <laughs> Strawberry Fields falls in a a frankly hilarious fall. <laughs> I. Rewound this about three times and could not stop laughing. It looks so, so bad. bad. Like her body like cracks in half. <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. Here's the thing. This is how you know the people working on this movie just had no no idea what they were doing. Just or or I don't know. They were just so caught up in their own. I world. think they gave no shits. No. Because anyone else watches this scene and goes Oh, are you going to play this off like, oh, my God, it looks like she got so hurt and so like it's so extreme. And then she's going to be like, I'm awake. I'm fine. Ha ha ha. Laughs. Goes along with the tone of this crazy ass movie. And then we end. Nope. We're going to dig our heels in and get real sad for the next 25 minutes. Yeah, I was like, I didn't see her dying as a like. Imagine if they played that off like it's funny how ridiculous she falls. And then she's like, I'm awake. I'm fine. And then we get a finale. Instead, it becomes this laborious, just hor just way too dark, way too sad. We're then at her funeral <laughs> in the next scene. As Golden slumbers his son, Strawberry Fields dies a horrifying and hilarious death. Peter Frampton is singing it. And I don't know where you stand on Frampton, Paul, but for me, after watching some really great performances from the BGs, from Aerosmith and Earth, Wind, and Fire, it really puts things in perspective of how I don't really like Peter Frampton. Yeah. I, I don't think I ever realized it until watching it. Re this movie, I was like, I don't like him that much. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of my one of my favorite uh, lines in High Fidelity, the movies. It's just like, when they go to see uh, Lisa Bonet sing, and he's like, is she singing Peter Frampton? Oh, yes. And he's like, I fucking hate Peter Frampton. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> and he goes, I kind of like this, though. 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's so great. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just not a. It's to me like Peter Frampton is that ultimate like, like if adult contemporary like was a genre that was just a genre as far as like, it's not rock, but it's also adult contemporary. It's not pop, but it's also like adult contemporary in a nutshell is Peter Frampton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, respect for like making. For writing the make your guitar talk shtick as long as you could and writing it to the bank. But, I mean, yeah. Just not my cup of tea, frankly. Yeah, it's the song, like, does anyone really like Baby I Love Your Way? I mean, like, really? Yeah, you know, the right singer. I'll give the, I'll give him that. The right singer, I like that song. Yeah. I just don't really like him as much, I guess, as a performer. I think I'd like some of his songs sung by other people. Mm, that okay. might be it. So, again, it just drones on. He's apparently, they're all just completely in tatters. Uh, we get the Long of Wine and Winding Road, a reprise of it, as Billy goes through Strawberry's now empty house. I guess his parents, her parents just decide to up and leave, too? I don't know. Yeah, I guess. Um, the now empty house, uh, he rummages through her things, reminisces about the life they once had. Again, we're laying it on really heavy after what was a essentially a comic death. Uh, and then we get, again... They put this song in. They're like, we have to get a day in the life in this movie, no matter what. I, why? <laughs> this was so confusing to me because the song starts, you know, and at first I'm like, wait, does Billy shoot himself in the head? Oh, because, yeah, because it tests the newspaper. And it's not him singing. No. It's Barry Gibbs' character. Right, it's Barry so Gibbs. So he's like, he's like, and then he's like sad. And then all of a sudden, like, he's like, up in like peppy as like oh the morning the morning period is done it's time to live my life but i'm like shouldn't it be frampton's character who's who's getting up like hey out of bed like cuz he like you know life goes on man right. like like what what's they the didn't point get of him? it they clearly didn't get it now that said I, again i like a lot of these versions of these songs oh i like yeah i like the version i was just it's- i was so to me my theory for the rest of the movie and in my head canon is that yes, Billy kills himself and the whole thing and that's why he meets up with Dead Girl at the end of the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why everything becomes magic at the end and just yeah. insanity. I'm like, okay, he's Yeah. Boy, remember forty five minutes before this where Steve Martin was playing it was prancing around as a wacky plastic surgeon? Yes. This is I, I missed that movie. Yeah, now, uh, as you mentioned, Barry Gibb is singing A Day in the Life. Uh, we see Billy jumping off the roof of a building as he's trying to commit suicide, but not so fast. Billy Preston comes to life as the uh, top of the <laughs> the top of the bill of the town he hall Sergeant building. Pepper. He is Sergeant Pepper. Come back to life with the magic cornet. First yes. of all, kick-ass version of this song. Billy Preston, a guy who... Of course, I believe he's on the uh, the rooftop concert uh, for the Let It Be sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy who had a very, very close ties with the Beatles. I believe he also was signed with the Beatles' Apple record label. He's awesome. I love his version of Get Back. It's great. And this whole scene is absolute insanity. Uh, he just comes he starts floating off the building. <laughs> and just, zap, you're alive. You have a nice outfit now. Strawberry Fields is well, back. He, tur- he turns back. He turns mustard and brute into a bishop and a monk. <laughs> as like, uh, what? As like punishment, or just like now you're I, now you're good people. 
I don't know. And then somehow no brings, as I said, somehow brings Strawberry Fields back to life. Just the, him zapping, zapping Billy Shears and then him floating back up in reverse. <laughs> what the hell? Oh, man. But damn, does he have some killer moves, by the way? Oh, yeah. He's fucking killing it. Love it. Love me some Billy Preston. Um. So, yeah. Everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> People come back to life. Billy doesn't kill himself. Um, the uh, the sort of the antagonists of the movie now go off to uh, live uh, like, uh, you know, live in a cloister, essentially. You know, she, one of them becomes a nun. The other becomes a monk. And uh, yeah, they all live happily ever after as we get Sergeant Pepper, Lonely Hearts Club Band, the finale. A live recreation of the, of course, iconic Sergeant Pepper's cover. Featuring a ton of celebs who uh, apparently were invited with engraved invitations, gold engraved invitations. Wow. And were told they're going to get VIP treatment. They're going to get a limo to pick them up. Uh, full spread of uh, a whole meal that they're going to get that day. There's going to be a party afterwards with all these celebrities. Like they were just promised the world. And I'm sure bags of cocaine. But. Yeah, that's why you see. I mean, it is a like who's who. Who were who were some of the guys you you were able to 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 point out here? To, to, well, to well, the you. stipulation also was, although a lot of you are musicians and a lot of you are singers or professional actors, please make sure you don't sing. You don't mime in time with the lyrics. Please make sure you. <laughs> please make sure to be just a half beat. Off whether before or after the lyric, please. Please don't mime too closely. We don't want it to seem that professional. Please. Please yeah, don't. Obviously wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, I spotted... At some op- point, I'm like, can they hear the playback? What's no, happening? definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. at, at one point, I spotted Carol Channing standing got, next to Channing. Tina Turner. Who I Tina think is, Turner stands out immediately. Yeah. Who I think is also standing next to Frankie Valli? Yes, yes. I have the list in front of me, so it's it's ruined okay. my... Uh, would you like to know some more? Yeah, keep going. Minnie Ripperton, who we just talked about in the last yeah. episode of the podcast. Wow. Loving you. It was easy Holy crap. Beautiful. Curtis Mayfield. Uh, Etta James. Holy shit, dude. So Peter Allen, George Benson, uh, Elvin Stephen Bishop, Jack Bruce, Keith Carradine, uh, Carol Channing, uh, Jim Dandy, Sarah Dash, Rick Derringer, uh, Randy Edelman, Yvonne Edelman, Leaf Garrett. I saw Leaf Garrett. I definitely saw Leaf Garrett. Hart is there. I think I might have noticed Hart. My God. Uh, let's see. Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, yeah. I think I Wilson saw that. Pickett. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. How Ooh. many of these people do you think came thinking the Beatles were going to be there? Like, this um, is a ton of people. And I know the PGs of Peter Frampton are huge. Probably a lot. Uh, Bruce Morrow, you might know him as Cousin Brucey on the oh radio. Uh, Curtis Mayfield, I already said, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I also, Wolfman Jack, I know, was there, another radio icon. Shanana. Shanana, everyone's favorite Woodstock act. Uh, let's see. Grover Washington Jr., Hank Williams Jr., Bobby Womack, Gary Wright. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of people. There's a ton of people there. A ton of people. And that's how the movie ends, <laughs> just with all of them, uh, apparently, probably completely blown out of their mind, uh, singing Beatles songs, and then asking, where's Paul McCartney? I was told he would be here. Also, according to uh, Mustard Henchman, Henchman Brute, uh, 
Carol Strykin or whatever his name is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sergeant Pepper was the last film to be made at MGM under that studio's then existing management. Wow. So literally that management was like, hey, we made this movie. Why are you shoving us out the door? What's happening? Like, <laughs> well, So this is not an MGM production, though. No. But it's just made on the MGM lot. Yeah. But, but, but also think about that. Th- that this under almost... that under that management under that management right. so like literally that management was shoved out <laughs> oh i got it i got it I got right it. i was almost gonna say if this is like the last made on the mgm lot the last no. musical made on okay never mind i was gonna say wow what a what a way to end the chapter of mgm musicals made on that lot <laughs> some of the most iconic films of all time and it ends with this but that's uh, not the case it'd have been almost too fitting so as we've been doing uh, with Rock and Roll Month, we thought a fun thing to do is let's take a look at the top 10 singles for the week that these films were released. Uh, last week, Paul, you quizzed me and I failed miserably. Uh, the songs that were released the first week, that Tom- the week that Tommy came out. So now we are focusing on this film was released July 21st, 1978. I will be quizzing Paul this week. And I'm going to give you the top 10 singles for July 22nd, 1978. Same exact, same weekend. So here we go. Let's just kick right off. Number 10. This song would eventually become the first number one hit for this music group. One of the most popular funk and soul bands of this era. Oh, uh, what's the year again? 1978. July 22nd, 1978. The top 10 singles. Uh, I can't do a Dick Clark. I was gonna. I, we did a Casey Kasem already. I can't do a Dick Clark. Uh, uh, I can't do a Ryan Seacrest. I'm trying to. Mm. You definitely know the song, but you yeah. probably know some of their other songs and some of the solo work from the lead singer. Maybe a little bit better. Oh, um, what year is it again? 1978, July 22nd. And here I'll give you the last hint. This should give it away. We've discussed the singer on the podcast before. Uh, the band's lead singer split off from the group in 1982. His debut album featured three top five hits. And, of course, his most famous music video was inspired by Fred Astaire's famous ceiling dance uh, from Royal Wedding. Oh, Jamiroquai. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you got uh, it. No, my brain's my brain's not working right now. What, what is it? Who would, who, who, what other artist is famous for dancing on the ceiling? And partying all night long. Cody, all night. Oh, shit. All night long. All night. Oh, my God. He also, you know, he's a judge on American Idol. I People know. are now screaming. I know. I know. It's bugging me because it's my brain is not. I, I'm picturing his face. I can see his lovely little, like, small fro. <laughs> and his wonderful, like, I can see Well, him. when he was with this group, he had a big one. Yeah, he did. But and uh, could you name the group at least? Oh my god, why is my brain not working? Right it's always now? when you're on the spot, is what it is. I know. I'll, I I'll tell you the group. The singer you're thinking of is Lionel Richie. Lionel Richie. God damn it. The group you're thinking of is the Commodores. Commodores. Son of a. I mean, could you name some Commodore songs? You probably get it by just naming a few. I don't know. Go ahead, just some of the songs. Well, you're once, twice. Damn Three it. times a lady, which would eventually become the number one hit for this group. Uh, man, if this is someone's first episode listening, they're like, this Paul guy doesn't know anything. Uh, <laughs> well, just listen to last week. I didn't know shit. Although, I feel like this list, this week's list, 
is a little easier than last week's, honestly. I, I believe it. Last week's had some had a few surprises. But I mean, it had an instrumental on. song on it. Let's yeah. not come on now. Now this is this is just me not being able to pull information out of my brain because yeah. I know a lot of Richie. <laughs> I'm just yeah, exactly. Uh, number nine, they were one of the most successful international music musical groups of the 70s. This song went as high as number three on the Hot 100, but the group had 20 singles that hit the Billboard Hot 100 during their peak from the early 70s to the early 80s. ABBA? You got the artist, ABBA, yeah. Which actually, back in 2010, when they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Barry and Robin Gibb did the honors of introducing oh. them. Uh, could you name the song? Is it Dancing Queen? It's not Dancing Queen, which is their only number one hit in America, by the way. Interesting. They were much uh, more popular, of course. In in Europe, they were the most successful winners of the Eurovision Song Contest, which they won back in 1974. Which song is it? This would be Take a Chance, Take a Chance, Take a Chance. Uh, take, take a, a chance, chance on me. Number three it reached uh, on the Hot 100, which was their second highest charting single in the United States. I got a nice ABBA kick last year. Like I, at some point, I just started listening to like their greatest hits album, yeah. and it's like this is amazing. Speaking of Eurovision, have you watched the new Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams Eurovision movie? I have not. Don't. Ooh, okay. It's awful, and I it, here's the thing, Paul. It's awful, and I was like, oh man, this is this is not funny. It's there's nothing about it. It's also a musical, which I'm like, fuck. Uh, it's well, I guess I have to watch it eventually. Then I go online and people are like, wow, the best Will Ferrell movie in years. I'm like, what did I miss? This isn't funny at all. This was bad. Uh, I watched Palm Springs. I enjoyed that. I heard that's great. It's great. Watch Watch it. Number eight. This song went as high as number four on the Billboard charts. This R&B group was around for over a decade before finally finding success when two of the members of the band left in the early 70s and they rebranded as a trio. This is the final top five hit for the group. They had six top five singles from 1972 to 1978, including their most famous song, which topped the charts in 72. They're often cited as one of the most influential groups in the Philadelphia soul subgenre. And they had a song that told people all over the world to join hands. And... Oh, shit. Start a... A love train. Is this love train the song? It's not love train. That's their biggest hit. Could you name the artist? Oh my Based God. off Love Train. Love Train, Love Train. Who sings Love Train? I don't know the artist. I know the song. That would but be I don't know the, artist. the famous R&B trio, the OJs. The OJs. And this song would be Used to Be My Girl. Okay. Their final top five hit in a, a string of success for about uh, six years there. All right. Okay. Number number seven might be a tough one. It's a, sh- a song that I'm sure was a staple of discos and clubs back in the late 70s. Uh, it's a very popular song. You pr- you probably know it. The group sound is probably on the funkier side of the disco genre. Uh, this song is actually featured on the final episode of Freaks and Geeks. It's also their second highest charting single of all time. Oh, now i got to remember they have less of Freaks and Geeks. Uh... <laughs> I tried to dig into some TV show references you would probably get here, Paul. That's oh, a little no, tough. Remember. It's a little tough, though. Uh, their top single, by the way, reached number two. And became the title of one of the seminal films of the 1990s, even though the song wasn't actually featured in the film. Ah, uh, damn it. I can be. Oh. Uh, you have to give me the artist. It's Heat Wave is the artist. The song. Okay, I wouldn't that have gotten that. Their biggest hit was Boogie Nights. The song here is The Groove Line. 
Ah, okay. That's how it goes. Good song, by the way. That's a song I was like, do I know this song? And the moment I heard it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this song kicks ass. This song's good. Could imagine it being played at many a, uh, a roller rink back in the day. Hmm. Number six, this song is actually written by Barry Gibb. This, one of the two, one of two songs, by the way, he wrote on, in this top ten this week. Uh, although he is not featured on the track. Uh, this artist had seven number one hits. That also includes solo songs and songs with uh, his original group. It's Michael Jackson? It's not Michael Jackson. Just kidding. No. It's not a bad guess, honestly. It has, to be pretty young, it has to be a pretty young Michael Jackson. Oh, uh, 78? What? Off the walls like a year later. That's right. That's true. Yeah. That's, it wouldn't have been that crazy. And actually wouldn't have been that crazy when you hear the next hint, and you'll probably get it after this hint. Uh, it's the titular song for the biggest movie of 1978. It's the only original song written for this adaptation of a movie musical, of a Broadway musical. Wait, hold on. I, I think my brain's mixing something up okay. here. Okay. Uh, yeah. Hear it again. It is the titular song for the biggest movie released in 1978, the movie of the summer, the only original, new original song, new original song, written for this adaptation of a famous Broadway musical. Damn it. I don't know, Cody. Go ahead. Grease is the time. It's the place. It's the motion. Frankie Valli. Grease. I didn't know that was the only original song written for it. That's it. Everything else is. Just I thought from every. The I thought. I thought the whole thing was from the musical. Interesting. But that's the only one that's that's written brand new for this movie. Everything else is just adapted from the musical. The Broadway. Yeah, movie. yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying yeah, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize oh, there yeah, was no, any. That was this an was original a, song. Yeah, this is yeah. a brand new song made for it. I mean, when you hear it, it sounds like a song from the '70s. Now that you true, think about that, it. That, that's true. Yeah. I love that song. By the way, is this a hot take? I like that song better than any other song in the show. <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Frankie Valley, of course, uh, with the Four Seasons, went to number one a bunch of times. Went to number one with this song as well. I didn't think I was going to go through an entire trivia thing where the only answer I got right was ABBA, but continue, Cody. Hey, whatever. It happens, you know. You, got, you know what you know. Number five. Uh, another song from a movie. The featured track for the film, Thank God It's Friday, a disco musical comedy featuring Jeff Goldblum. If you can figure out the song based off that clue, bravo. I don't think you will. No. This song goes on to win the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Original Song. Uh, it also is the Grammy Award for Best R&B Female Female Performance. It peaked at number three on the Billboard charts. Made by an artist who was nearly in this movie. Oh. Uh, is One it of, Olivia Newton-John? No, not Olivia Newton-John. Oh. Good guess. Tina Turner? Not Tina Turner. No. One of the sort of seminal disco songs, really, of the era, too. Is this Heart of Glass? Not Heart of Glass. Oh. Yeah, this oh. this one will give it away here. The name oh, of the song has taken on a whole new meaning in 2020, as it's also the title of an incredibly popular sports documentary released earlier this year. Oh, the Say the Last Dance or whatever? The Last Dance. The Last Dance. Yeah. The Last Dance. Donna Summer who uh, apparently they wanted uh, to be in this movie uh, as Lucy, lead, lead, lead singer of Lucy. That's crazy. I didn't, like, I didn't know that song was I didn't know an original was, for a movie. That's so weird. That didn't know that either. Any other year, Grease would have won Best Original Song, but yeah. the, last, the Last Dance came out the same year. Yeah. 
Pretty wow. good year. Pretty good year for original songs and movies, by the it way. It was a very good year. Number four, uh, the first of four songs off this Rock Legends album that would chart uh, on the top 100. Uh, this after the incredible success of his breakout album, a album that would become six times platinum. Uh, he was one of the most pro- prolific rock acts of the 70s. His first Elton number John? one. Nope, not Elton John. Oh. His first number one single. He had a lot of uh, Hot 100 singles, but his first number one single didn't come until 1987 with a song off the soundtrack of the Eddie Murphy comedy Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, damn it. Oh. He's a guy we actually mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, often referred to as the Rambling Gambling Man, 75 million records sold. He's one of the highest selling artists, musical artists of all time. Oh, uh, God. Uh, I'm going to miss it again. You asked me this last time, and I yeah. missed it again. And I'm going to miss it again. And it's a song you're like, oh, I like that song. You may say the same thing with yeah, this song. Against the Wind fucking was the song that we talked yes! about before. <laughs> so who's the guy? Seeger? Bob Seeger. Yeah. Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. The song is still the same. Mm. I don't really know. I, I don't really know the Bob Seeger catalog. That really. one I don't remember. I know Against the Wind. Uh, number three. This one is a, a very popular song that I'm sure you'll know. One of this legendary band's eight number one hits. It was released in advance of their latest album release that year, an album that would go on to become the group's best-selling record in the United States. Uh, the first time the band reached number one since 1973. They had also reached the top of the charts as early as 1965. A band that is definitely uh, a contemporaries of the Beatles. Um, in fact, whenever you bring up the Beatles, this band almost comes Stones? up right alongside them. Yep, the Rolling Stones. Uh, the album is Some Girls. I don't know how well you know the Be- the I, Rolling Stones I don't know the Rolling Stones. I know like the singles, but I don't know like what albums they come from. It would from be the song Miss You. Girl, I miss you. Good song. Number two, you may not know the name of this artist, but you definitely know his work, and you definitely know the iconic saxophone lick featured in this song's chorus. Uh, this singer-songwriter's biggest cultural impact came during a brief career pit stop when he formed the band Steelers Wheels, who scored a hit with Stuck in the Middle with You, which, of course, goes on to become more iconic as it's featured in Reservoir Dogs. Uh, despite the song's massive success, it actually never got to number one, and it spent six straight weeks at number two thanks to this week's top song. This one's a tough one. But you said it's, it's the saxophone thing? It's got an iconic saxophone lick. Is the bum 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 around? Yeah, it, it bum, is. Bum, bum, can you name the can you name I, the song? I cannot. I did, I know the the line. I know the It's Baker Street, Jerry Rafferty. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to give it to you anyway. I know ba- Baker Street I should have known. I have heard the name of the song before. Yeah. It's a great lick. Baker Street, I should have known the name of the song because yeah. I've heard the name of the song before. Incredibly popular song. Probably would have been number one any other time, but it just ran into this juggernaut at the top of the charts. Uh, a singer that nearly starred in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, he's one of the biggest teen idols of the late 70s. This is another song written by Barry Gibb and really a testament to the immense popularity of the Bee Gees, and more so the Gibb brothers during this era. Hint, hint. If these hints have not been, uh, if I've not laid down these hints thick enough already, uh, the song is basically basically a Bee Gees song. 
even down to the guys who are singing on it. Uh, although the leads, the main singer of the song, a solo act, tried to keep things strictly solo with only a little bit of help from uh, his big brother. Oh, is this Barry Gibb? It's not, it's not Barry Gibb, but it is a Gibb. Robin Gibb? It's not. No, it's not a member of the Bee Gees. Oh, it's not. Oh, I thought you were. No. Okay. My brain right now. Uh. Yeah. Also, Paul, there's a good oh, chance. Is it Michael Jackson? <laughs> yes. The, the famous other Gibb brother, Michael Jackson. Maurice Gibb? Not Maurice Gibb. <laughs> Uh, Paul, uh, you probably also know this song. There's a good chance you know this song from the South Park episode where Mr. Garrison gets a nose job that makes him look like David Hasselhoff. Ah, oh, crap. How, no, I can't pull, how well I can't do you remember right that episode? Not very well. I, I, I can't pull it right now. The song is Shadow Dancing, and the Shadow artist Dancing. is teen idol Andy Gibb, the youngest of the Gibb uh. brothers. Who this is? So this is his third straight number one hit. So if you want to really get technical here, the Gibbs brothers, with him and the Bee Gees, scored nine straight number one hits. Which Damn. We talk about, I feel like we talk about like musical family dynasties, and the Gibbs don't get brought up nearly enough. Wow. Like, as brothers, nine straight number one hits. Wow. Like, I know Michael and Janet had huge hits together, or separately. And the Jackson 5, clearly, but, like, that's insane. Yeah. They just dominated the charts for about three years. So I've learned something about my brain. Uh, in the lexicon of drawers that are in my brain, for some reason, the ABBA one is way at the front. <laughs> uh, As it should be. And I don't know why. Uh, yeah. I'm terrible. That's why I always tell people I'm terrible at trivia. Like uh, yeah. a friend of ours, Akaika, was like, "Oh, you want to do a trivia thing?" I'm like, "I'm just so you know, I'm really bad at trivia." I'm like, "I've just," and it's not because like I don't know something; it's because my brain sometimes just will not pull the info. Well, I'm gonna give you Baker Street. That's a good pull. Just the fact that you could you could do the lick. Two I'll for give ten, it to you. baby. Two, Two for, for ten. ten. Good enough. Well, if you change your mind, just take a chance on me. That's all. Take a chance on me. Take a chance. Take a chance. Take a chance. All right. One of my favorite moments of The Office. Yeah, that's a good moment. That's a great moment. Good before call. they before they ruin that character in the end. Yeah, you know, uh, we've been watching. We were watch, just finished a rewatch of The Office. We're talking about Andy of The Office, correct? Yeah, sucks how bad he gets at the end, man. Well, yeah, they they do it for and no reason. Just, Basic- and then they just abandon ship essentially. Yeah, th- there's a point when they're like, "Well, we need a Dick Michael Scott character." So we're just going to make him that, even though he wasn't that for the entire series. Right. And then all of a sudden, he's just a bad person out of nowhere. Yeah. And you're like, why? And suddenly, why? D- and suddenly Dwight is likable? And yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a show that went on too long. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Although, although the final season has its moments, I think. It does. But uh, moments do not make an entire show. Uh, one swallow does not make a summer. It's, you know what I mean? It's, Fair it's, enough. There's, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, all right, before we start digging into what sitcoms we're watching, by the way, I'm, uh, w- w- we are currently watching Community, and um, very nice. I highly recommend rewatching that, but anyway. Yeah, it's a great one. Uh, that's not what the podcast is about. It's about a uh, musical, and I think we're just about done talking about this musical. So uh, there you go, Sgt. Pepper and uh, the juggernaut, the, the dynasty, the Gibb dynasty, really, is what they should be called. Absolutely. All right, that'll wrap things up. Um, 
if uh, you like us and you want to hear more of us, go to our website, moviemusicalpod.com. Of course, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Review us and rate us as well. If you like what you're hearing, uh, let us know. We would really, really appreciate it. Uh, You can uh, follow us also on Twitter at Movie Musical Musical Pod, if I can say that right, Movie Musical Pod, and also on Facebook uh, at the same address. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody Pasby. I'm at the Paul Ponte. I'm also at paulponte.com, where you can check out my other podcasts and uh, my photography and music. And I don't really want to stop the show, but I thought you might like to know that until next time, I'm Cody Pasby. And I'm Paul Ponte. And we'll see you down the yellow brick road.